Welcome to Shuva Full Circle. I'm Emmett Gillis. And I'm Rivka Alexandra Gillis. We're a Balchuva couple, or BTs for short. That means we're Torah observant Jews who didn't grow up this way. As we've begun our family, we're exploring what it means to integrate our yeshiva and seminary learning into daily life. We've seen some of the challenges BTs like us face as they build new lives in the religious world. In each Shuva episode, we'll ask our guests to unpack the nature of BT integration and how to make it work in practice. We'll cover observant life across different stages. And of course, we'll share some relatable BT moments. You know the ones I'm talking about. Our goal is to develop a healthy BT perspective at each stage. And toward ourselves, to integrate our learning with our lives. It's a holy journey, and we're grateful to be on it with you. This series is dedicated in memory of Ita Baschanaich Aaron. May we soon merit the coming of Mashiach and reunite with all those who are so, so dearly missed. Amen. This episode is sponsored by a generous anonymous donor. Thank you so much for your support. Please contact us at btcenter.org to sponsor an upcoming episode. On a previous Shuva episode, we heard from Rabbi Yassi Paltiel how important it is for established Anash families to adopt and embrace new Bali Shuva as they integrate into the community. We've since heard tremendous feedback from our listeners, who relate profoundly to Rabbi Paltiel's message and welcome the conversations this podcast has generated. In this episode, we have the privilege of hearing from Yehuda Forster, a Balchiva with firsthand experience of guidance and mentorship from Rabbi Abba Paltiel and Dr. David Shalom Pape, among others, and the impact such support can make. After listening to our interview with Rabbi Paltiel, Yehuda reached out to share his story. So we invited him onto the podcast to hear more about his Balchuva journey and discuss how to best find the advice and support each of us need as we build vibrant Jewish homes on the firm foundations of Torah and Mitzvahs. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Where did you grow up, Yehuda, and what connections did you have to Judaism as a child? I grew up in Long Island in New York. I would say that my connections with Judaism were kind of slim. I remember I did go to a Hebrew school, after-school Hebrew program at the conservative synagogue in my town. And I think the most significant Jewish experience I have is when I was in Kita Aleph. I had a really wonderful Svartisha Mora named Mrs. Malka. And she basically did three things. She called us by our Jewish names. So I knew my name was Yehuda right from, you know, Kita Aleph. We gave tzedakah every day and we sang songs. The singing was just so heart-opening, like neshama-opening. It was just, I, I love the singing. After Kita Aleph, I didn't really relate so much to um, the Hebrew school that I went to and pretty much didn't really feel very connected, even from my bar mitzvah. And after bar mitzvah, didn't have much to do with Yiddishkeit. Our family wasn't religious at all. I lived in an area that was very, very secular, very focused on materialism, focused very much on career success, sports success, social status. Growing up, I had a friend and their mother was, um, she told me something about uh, the six days of creation. And I looked at her like she was absolutely crazy. I was like, who believes in that? It's so prehistoric. And I just, that was kind of the mindset that I have. Like spirituality was very flaky. Religion was for the weak. And that was kind of my childhood. When was your first aha moment when you felt your Jewish identity asserting itself? 
I think even before my Jewish identity asserted itself, I had like more of a spiritual awakening and I didn't really associate it with Judaism at the time. But looking back on it, that was the beginnings of my coming back to Judaism. It was basically after I graduated college, I went straight to law school. And basically, I really didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't feel very grown up. I wasn't really ready for real life. And I kind of went to law school because I didn't really know what else to do. And my father was a lawyer. His father was a lawyer. It was just sort of the, it seemed like it would be a good thing to do and, you know, make my parents happy. But I really didn't like it. I mean, I really didn't like it. The first year was very, very difficult. And I made a decision at that, like that year that I, I just wasn't ready for this and I was going to drop out. A friend and I went traveling around the country on the West Coast with tents. And, but around that time, I happened upon this center for yoga and health in the, in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts. I was in a very troubled state of mind. I was uh, very restless inside. I was not happy. I didn't feel like I really knew what my life was about or purpose or meaning or anything. And I wound up spending a weekend at this uh, center. And I would say that it's probably the first time that I really felt like a certain sense of peace of mind. It sort of really opened me up. And I, and I said, maybe, you know, all those things that I had kind of heard about when I was younger, maybe all that stuff is true. And it just made me kind of really start to rethink my life. So when did it take a Jewish turn? So basically, I wound up going to live at this center. I was there about three months, and then my grandmother passed away. So I went home to be with my mother, and I figured while I was home, I said to myself, you know, now that I'm much more interested in spiritual things, let me go back to the conservative synagogue that I was bar mitzvahed in, and maybe I'll relate to it much more now that I'm more open and, and more serious about, about these things. Maybe there's something there for me. So I wound up going on Shabbos, and I remembered the songs from Mrs. Malka. And I was singing really loud and singing. And, the, and after the services, the, the chazan came up to me, and he said, what's your name? And I told him my English name. And he said, well, what's your Jewish name? And I said, Yehuda. And he says, Yehuda? Yehuda stands for the truth. And he says, you know, your, your Jewish name represents your, your soul. And he invited me to a class at his house. I remember looking forward to that class all week. And then when it came time for the class, it's actually, I was actually, I used to fast once a week as a spiritual practice. And I was fasting that day and I went to his house and I just remember the food looked so good that I was like, okay, I'm breaking my fast. <laughs> and I, I was eating and in walks this man with a black hat and a long black coat. And uh, he sits down and he starts like teaching. And there was a group of us there. And, and uh, I don't remember exactly what he said. I remember I really didn't like it that much. And I thought he was maybe kind of a little bit arrogant and kind of know it all. And didn't really relate to it that much. And, and I was kind of going to leave afterwards, but someone convinced me to stay afterwards and talk to him. The Chazin came up to me and he said, I'm going to take David Shalom home. It was David Shalom Pape. And uh, he said, we're going to take go back to Crown Heights and drop him off. Do you want to come? So I said, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. And so David Shalom looks at me and he says, well, well, first you should ask your mother for permission. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, I haven't lived at home for years. I've been in college and law school. Now you, this man is telling me to ask my mom for permission. Meanwhile, I called my mother <laughs> and I asked her for permission. 
And she said, sure, go ahead. Because at that point, anything was better than going back to the yoga ashram with a guru over there. You know, go with the Jews. So they took me to 770. And the Rebbe was in the hospital at that time. It was before Gimel Thomas. But I was totally taken with what I saw there. It was like electrifying atmosphere. It didn't look like America, actually, as we were driving in. And I had never seen anything like it. And uh, I saw people my age, like, yelling at each other, what looked to me like yelling at each other over these big books. But what I noticed was like a, a sincerity. There was a certain lack of cynicism. I had grown up with like a very, very cynical. Everything was very cynical. And here I saw that there was something very, very earnest about the people. And uh, I very much like was, ta was taken by that. And David Shalom said to me, he said, Shavuos is coming up. And he said, it's very important for your neshama to be in shul on Shavuos and hear the Ten Commandments. And it was like, really? Like, wow, that sounds like so profound. And the chazin, Avi Albrecht, he said to, to David Shalom, you know, maybe you could have Yehuda for Shavuos. And David Shalom said, I think that could be arranged. And I said, okay. And uh, I wound up calling my boss back at the yoga ashram and saying, I'd like to take a few more days to go for this holiday, Jewish holiday and hear the Ten Commandments in, in synagogue. And she was actually Jewish. And she said, no, you cannot do that. You're just going to get involved with this other group or whatever. You have to come back. You have responsibilities here. And I remember thinking, and this is so funny how the Yetzirah works, how tricky it could be. I remember thinking, you know, well, the old me who wasn't so spiritual would have just done whatever I wanted and I would go and do it anyway. But now I was like, I'm going to actually do the right thing and go back to the yoga place and go back to work. I told the chazin I wasn't going to be able to go to, uh, to David Shalom's house. I wound up going back to this place. And every time I used to go there, it was on a beautiful place and long winding driveway up, to, up this hill. And every time I would go there, I would feel like I was coming home. But this time I pulled in the driveway and I started to drive up and all of a sudden I got hit like a lightning bolt with the feeling that I was about to make the biggest mistake in my entire life. I was literally shaking. And I walked into the ashram and I, I couldn't shake it. I, w I, went to the I went to the whirlpool, I went to the sauna, I tried to meditate, but nothing was working. And like the next day when I saw my boss, she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know, but I really feel like I need to go to the synagogue. Like, like I really wanted to do that. I need to do that. And she said, you know what? Go ahead, take another vacation day and, and go back. And I wound up driving all the way back, going to Crown Heights. I thought it was like a one night thing. I was going to go show up at their house, go to synagogue, hear the Ten Commandments and go back. Little did I know it was like, <laughs> you know, multiple day Yom Tov. <laughs> so I wound up having an amazing experience in Crown Heights. That was like the real beginning. That was like the aha, that feeling that I had. It was like something else, something much bigger was sort of guiding me. And then that really took shape with seeing what I saw in the Papes family and in Crown Heights, I saw in the Papes family, I, I saw very, very spiritual, but also very, very down to earth. You know, a family that was involved in like eating, drinking, kids, you know, celebrating, friends, and it was very, very spiritual at the same time. Whereas in the yoga ashram, it was like the more spiritual you were, the more removed from the world you were. And here I saw that you could have spirituality infused with physical life and it felt just so much more at home to me. 
It's really powerful to hear the different parts of your story that I think are universal in certain ways. I know there are a lot of Jews who went to a yoga ashram, but that, that's not the parts I'm talking about. But those feelings that your neshama has taken over and comes alive, and then also this very direct connection to Hashem and feeling that guidance. And without being able to pinpoint and explain what it is, you just know deep inside of you, okay, this is not where I'm meant to be. Let me go to the place that that is calling out to me. And for you, that's Crown Heights, which is amazing. I'm wondering who guided and advised you when you left the yoga ashram and settled into life in Crown Heights? And did you go to yeshiva? I didn't go directly to Crown Heights and directly leave the yoga ashram. Even though I had this aha experience, it didn't lead me right to the next thing. In fact, David Shalom was trying to convince me to go to yeshiva. And I told him, no, I really feel like I need to go back to this place because I have more to learn there. And he said like the most amazing words that really carried me. He said, if you're going to go back there, meet other Jews and teach them what you learned here. It was almost like being deputized as a shliach. I knew basically nothing, except I had this incredible experience in Crown Heights. And for some reason, I was able to go back there and meet Jews. And there were a lot of Jews living there, including my future wife was there. And that's how we met. I'm sorry, Rivka, you said, what was the question again? Well, I was wondering who advised you when you left the ashram and settled into Crown Heights. But now I also want to know the story of how you met your wife, since you <laughs> guided us into that. Oh, um, my wife was there. And definitely I had noticed her before going to Crown Heights. But there was kind of like a strict policy over there with separation between men and women. And so even though we were in some groups together, I kept my distance. When I had this sort of directive from David Shalom to go meet other Jews and teach them what I learned here, it was almost like a kosher way of kind of engaging with my wife and others. We would learn together, teach and stuff like that. We actually a few times went to Albany for, for Shabbos. And so it was still separate, but I was definitely involved in learning and getting closer to Judaism. And I was trying to share that with others, including my wife. I wound up leaving. She wound up staying there for more time. But, you know, how we connect, ultimately connected years later is another story. What was the story of how you ended up leaving the ashram and settling in Crown Heights? When I left the ashram, actually the last Shabbos that I was there, there was a rabbi that I had met who lived not too far away. He was like a little bit of a shliach. His name was Ben Sian Salaf. I used to go to his house. We used to learn together. The last Shabbos that was there, he actually came to the ashram and did a Shabbaton over there. When he walked in, he looked at me and he said, Yehuda, you got to get out of here. This place is, it's not for you. The spiritual vibes are not the Jewish vibes. And so after that Shabbos, I kind of just left. He took me and I think the first thing he took me to is took me to the mikvah. <laughs> but when I left, I didn't go to, directly to Crown Heights. I went to Yeshiva. I went to Morristown. So what was that yeshiva experience like? Was it total culture shock coming from the ashram? Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was actually a bit of a struggle, like where I was going to go, what I was going to do. But ultimately, I found that Hashem was sort of sending me signs that I could understand that led me to that yeshiva. And it was a bit of a culture shock in the sense that I had been like doing pretty heavy spiritual work on myself for like over a year. When I first got to, um, to Morristown, Rabbi Vichnan, he gave me a big hug, actually. That was the first thing he did. And I really appreciated that. That was the language that I spoke. You know, that was what I needed. 
And he also, he started to ask me, you know, what I had done. And when I told him that I had dropped out of law school, he told me that um, you should go back. He said that the Rebbe was always in favor of completing what you started. And um, he advised me to ultimately go back to law school. Was that advice that you expected to receive from a Chabad rabbi? At that point in my life, I had no idea what to expect, honestly. I had seen some wild stuff. I had experienced a lot of wild things. And honestly, I was sort of felt like Hashem was directing me to this yeshiva. And I pretty much made up my mind that I was going to do whatever they said, you know, that this was going to, this is, whether I liked it or not, that wasn't the judge of sort of what, what I was going to do. I kind of felt like this was the true path to um, what my neshama needed. And whatever they sort of told me to do or taught me, that was like, that was my mindset. So I really had very little expectations and I kind of took it at face value and said, okay, you know, and you know, I spent over a year in yeshiva, but ultimately wound up going back to law school. So just fast forwarding a bit, I wondered if you could share the story of how you met your wife and married her, but also of your learning, your first year of learning, and then how that turned into your first law firm job. Okay, so my wife and I stayed in contact a little bit when I was in Shiva, and she came to Morristown once, and, and actually we spent uh, a Shabbos that she was there, and then she actually came for Pesach at the Pape's house, so we were both there at the Pape's house, but she was still living in the, in the Yoga Ashram. Ultimately, she went to Israel, and she went on a secular program in Israel, in Sfas, and I, after Morristown, went to Kfar Chabad for a summer with the idea that I would see, you know, my wife over there in Israel. But when I went to Kfar Chabad, Rabbi Gaffney, I told him about this idea to go meet my wife, you know, and he said, Yehuda, you're here to learn Torah, not to meet girls. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I had to call my wife. Again, it was like one of these things like, am I going to do what I want or am I going to do what the rabbis are telling me? I kind of felt like everything I had done sort of, I made, I like messed things up in my own life. And like, this was my only hope of like getting it right. So I remember calling my wife and saying, I just, I can't meet with you. You know, my rabbi said it's not the right time. But ultimately, it was the right time. I was about to graduate law school. She then transferred from the secular program to an actual seminary in Harnof and Yerushalayim. And I put a call in through a third party to see if she'd be interested in dating. Up to then, we hadn't dated, but I put a call in to see if she'd be interested in dating. And at that point, my wife said, I can't deal with this anymore. And she handed it over to her Rebbitzin to like, and then I knew she was really serious because I saw that she was taking it really seriously. And um, her Rebbitzin, Dawah Shalom Pape, wound up speaking. And I flew out there to Israel and we had very strict guidelines of what we could do on dates and how long the dates could be, where, we, where they were. And we dated for, I think, a week or so. And then she flew to Crown Heights a few weeks later and we dated a couple more times and then we got engaged. Our wedding was on Chai Elul in 1999. I had just taken the bar exam, but I wasn't going straight to work. And I decided, you know, I really want to spend the first year of marriage learning. I asked for a bracha, I wrote in to the Rebbe for a bracha to learn for a year. And I went to Hadar Torah and I learned with the boys in Hadar Torah, I had a chabrusa, and um, at about six months in, we started to run out of money. We were using our wedding money to live. My wife was working in, a, in the Shluchim office and, um, and my wife had said, you have to look for a job. So 
I wanted to get like a nine to five job, you know, just like a regular sort of be able to learn, be able to like, you know, have a, a normal Jewish life. And nothing was going. I was getting rejected from every interview. I don't know exactly why. I wasn't very polished, that's for sure. I looked like Yeshiva Bacher, you know, with a beard hanging out. And then I wound up actually working for free just to get experience for a little bit, like a part-time working for free. My wife said to me, this is crazy. Go to back to your law school and have them help you. I really didn't want to go back to my law school. It was sort of like putting my tail between my legs. But I decided I would go and make an appointment with the dean of the law school, the head of the law school himself. I went in and the dean gave me a big hug and said, Yehuda. And he sat me down and he said that um, he realizes that sometimes it's very difficult for the Orthodox Jewish students to get jobs. And he said, wait a second here. And he made a phone call. You know, he talked to this person on the phone. I was listening to what he said. And then he looked at me and he said, okay, that was the managing partner of the oldest law firm in New York City. He wants you to call him in five minutes. I said, wow. So I went down to the payphone downstairs. I called this uh, person and he said, okay, come in, let's talk. And so I went into to the law firm, very um, prestigious, big pictures of people on the walls, a, a secretary with a thick English accent welcoming you in this huge lobby. And I went up to the umpteenth floor to speak to this managing partner. And he, and we started talking and he said, OK, you seem like an intelligent guy. You seem like you'll be able to like do the work. He said, I, I think we can probably stick you in capital markets. He says, there's a lot of different kinds of people in capital markets. But he said, you'll still have to interview. And in many ways, I interviewed. And on Chai Elul, one year exactly after our marriage, I got the offer to work for the law firm. It was not really 9 to 5, I could tell you that. Yeah. It was more like 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very difficult way to start the, the, the marriage. The one year of learning that you had was exactly the bracha that you had written in for to the rabbi. Exactly, exactly. During the early years of your career and your marriage, who were your key mentors? And were these the same people that you had first met and who guided you when you moved to Crown Heights? So the papes, they took me in as a son. You know, I used to spend a lot of time with them as a bacher. Mrs. Pape, may she be well, you know, Dr. Pape and their family, their kids, beautiful children. Also, around that time, I was having like um, questions that were coming up for me related to my Jewish kind of spiritual practices. I had come from a background at the ashram with a lot of heavy meditation, and I was very interested in his bonanus, what it says in Tanya, and just how the practice of using one's mind worked in Judaism. And I remember seeing the certain chassid davening in 770, you know, all day long. Just the way he looked, I knew that he was, it was something that he was doing and how he was davening that felt like he would be able to um, give me guidance. And I think other people had told me to also to speak to him and that was Abba Paul Thiel, um, Rabbi Paul Thiel Sr. And I remember going to speak to him about, you know, some of these questions that I had in Avodah Hashem. And he was able to speak to me on a very intellectual level and really explain things that really started to open the doors for me in terms of how Yiddishkeit views Avodah and Hasidus. And uh, he invited me to come to a class that he gave uh, with a group of mainly Bali Tshuva, 
it was very interesting to me that such a profound teacher really devoted himself to Bali Chuva. And we had a group that met every day at 6.30 in the morning. And we would learn, you know, very deep chassidus from the Rebbe Rashab. We'd also learn in the evening one night a week. And then on Shabbos, we would often have Fabringens as well to talk about what we're learning. And that was really, really special. That became, you know, he, and he became really my mashpia. And also he would talk to my wife and like he very just uh, a big part of our family. Yeah, I just learned a tremendous amount from him. So how did those relationships with Dr. Pape and his family and Rabbi Paltiel Sr., how did those mature or evolve over time as not only were you married, but you started to have children and your family grew? And I'm sure that came with new challenges and experiences. You know, my relationship with the Papes sort of, I don't think I spent that much time with him. We would see each other, but it wasn't the same as when I was a Bachar. I knew that he was, they were always there if I needed to, you know, questions and stuff like that. You know, with, with Rabbi Paul Thiel, we really had this amazing group going. And that was like, I was in that shear for like 15 years straight. It was a slow opening of the pathways of, of Hasidus and uh, the teachings of Hasidus. On the home front, life was very overwhelming. This was my one oasis of sort of peace. I was in a very demanding job. My wife was handling all the kids. I was not home that often. And we had five boys in a row. And they were like not calm boys, like <laughs> little boys, you know. They were wild and I had no clue, just no modeling for how to deal with it, like no, nothing to look back on. Our house felt very chaotic a lot of times. My wife was completely overwhelmed. I was stressed out. So I think at a certain point, I just said, you know, like, I just have to deal with what I have. We just have to, like, make the best of it. And some of the some of the great advice I got, like, different kinds. Of, I remember Paul Thiel once telling me, you know, when you're at the Shabbos table and sing Shalom Aleichem, everybody should hold hands together and maybe walk around the table or something, like something physical. And we, we kind of developed these family things that, like, we did together, where our family was developing their own sort of family minhagim you know, that we would appreciate. I remember one year in Pesach, I dressed up, you know, like somebody and told some story about, you know, the Jews leaving from Mitzrayim. And a lot of it, it was just like trying to find, just to get through it and trying to find out what worked. I mean, I wished I would have heard your podcast with Rabbi Sri Friedman and uh, Rabbi Paul Thiel. I also see Paul Thiel. It's, you know, now it sounds like, wow, there's such words of wisdom. But for some reason, I don't think I was a Kaylee at the time to really implement all of this stuff. So you had the connection of those 15 years of learning with one of your mentors. I'm wondering if you have specific memories of when you received advice at a time in your married life or in your career that really struck a chord with you and you were able to say that totally changed what the path you had been on and provided you the guidance and the structure that you needed to turn something that was chaotic into something that was really working for you. Not necessarily. I mean, I did definitely have great guidance and mentorship. But I think there was a change that started to occur about a little over 10 years ago, maybe. I started to realize that I had other issues that I needed to confront. I needed to confront very human issues, things from my past in a way that wasn't necessarily like a religious thing. And a very powerful part of my life was actually going for help 
and getting therapy and working through very real things in terms of how that affected my family. You know, I think I had for a long time a certain attitude that like my life before Yiddishkeit was treif. And now my life is Kaddish. And I kind of shielded my kids from my past. And I just tried very hard to do everything right. But something wasn't really clicking. It was imbalanced. I needed the spirituality to sort of stay afloat of a black hole that I felt like I was always in danger of falling into. And that's why I sought out help for myself. And through, honestly, through therapy, I started to open up a lot more and I started to share more with my kids, not necessarily talking, you know, just trying to have a good time at the Shabbos table, talking to them about current events, talking to them about what I learned when I was a kid. And I actually felt that I was starting to relate more to my kids, to my wife. And so I feel like a lot of the real maturing that I've done was not so much just being a better pupil, but at a certain point, trying to figure out how do I stand on my own two feet? And how do I trust myself? How do I appreciate who I am and the milas that I have? And I started to embrace parts of myself that I had exiled. This has been very powerful for me. And my mentors have always been there, you know, for me. But like any parents and children, there comes a time when the child has to launch and the parents know how to support the child but also give them space. And so I found myself needing space from some of these mentors and trying to find my own way. And I remember like I sought out specifically like a shul in Crown Heights. I wanted friendship. I wanted people that I could schmooze with. And I found the best in Crown Heights with Robbie Cooperman. And it was a wonderful, it is a wonderful community. I mean, I was there for many years, just really valuing friendship, valuing this kind of uh, openness. And ultimately that led me to move to a small community in Kingston. It was just following more what I felt like my, our family really needed in moving to a place which would be a little bit smaller, more nature, more peaceful surroundings to kind of facilitate our peace of mind and our children having a little bit more space. So that's kind of where things have been going. What are the parts of yourself that you feel like you had exiled, if you're comfortable sharing? Well, okay, so certain parts have to do with, as Rabbi Jacobson would say, certain traumas that I experienced when I was younger. And I needed to really revisit those and work through those things. Because when certain traumas happen, we develop ways of coping. And, and I found that I sort of pushed certain parts of myself down. So I would say that one of the parts is just, I've always been a very sensitive person. And um, I think in the business world and in, in law, like I never felt like it was congruent with sort of that more sensitive part of myself. And uh, I kind of felt out of place a lot of times in the, in the work world. And I think one major step for me in reclaiming that is I, I sort of followed through on a dream that I had of becoming a therapist, which is something that I have felt like this is something that I would really, really enjoy and love and would have a chush in. But 
I always kind of pushed it down. Either I was afraid of it, like maybe I just wouldn't be good enough or wouldn't be able to do it, or I, maybe I just had too many unresolved issues to actually be effective. But I think at a certain point, I said, you know what, I'm going to try to do this. And I took it slowly. I just started taking one class at a time while I was working in law. And now I've finished almost all my classes and I'm doing my internship now. And I could tell you that it is the most rewarding work for me. I'm absolutely loving working with people, working with couples, working with individuals and families and listening, trying to listen to them and to um, be present. And uh, it's reclaiming, you know, parts of me that uh, I had not been in touch with. Did you have a friend group that you were able to discuss some of your challenges and more, you know, some of your inner struggles with? So saying outside of your mentors, you had like a BT friend group or maybe FFBs to rely on. I did. I do have a number of close friends that I was able to open up and talk with them very openly. And that is extremely, extremely helpful. One of the things that surprised us when we started this podcast is that we noticed that a lot of Balichava are not talking about the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned years into becoming from, not right at the beginning or the exciting moment of inspiration, but the kind of stuff we're talking about now. Why do you think people are keeping that stuff under wraps and not sharing it like you're doing so people like us can learn from it? I guess I can talk about myself and kind of how I relate to that question. I think part of it might be that sometimes it's hard to tell the story when you're in the middle of it. You know, like if you're so in the middle of like just just getting through life and and living, you don't even know there's a story to tell. You're just living. And I think having a story to tell requires some perspective. It really requires reflecting on the significance of what have I been through? What have I learned from it? And what do I have that's relatable to others that they will also be able to relate to? You know, there was a certain point where I realized like, hey, I, I actually have a story. I have like there's there's things that I went through that are. And I remember there's a time when I started to tell just little snippets of my story. And my kids used to love hearing like my Balchiva story and the ashram and the th things that would happen. And so that's one thing is just getting some perspective and clarity, reflecting on it. Another thing might be shame. We're not always so proud of the things that, you know, we went through. And you see beautiful families, beautiful religious people. And, and I know, like, for me, I kind of wanted to be like that. I want my life to be, like, really pure and holy. And when I feel colorful and when I feel, you know, like I'm not doing things like everybody else and I dive in from the Ahmed and I don't really sound like everybody else, you know, it could be embarrassing and you, you don't want to stick out. What I think is really important is to really realize that we have something very, very special. Every Balchiva that I know is like a superstar. Like, so, like there's something so special, what they've been through, the strength that they have in their, in their lives. It's like, it's like you could pick them up a mile away. You know, there's a certain connection that we have. It's just like you can open up with somebody else, another Balchiva. I think it takes that idea that we have something to offer as well. Like it's not just that we have to be like everybody else, but that our special quality, like it needs to come out. Like the, the world will gain 
from what we have to offer. Lubavitch will gain from what I have to offer. And if I don't offer it, no one's going to gain from it. If I don't bring myself to the table and bring my whole self to the table, the world is going to be missing that piece. And I think it's just really, it's so important to embrace that and talk about our stories and talk to each other and, and share. What do you think more experienced balichuva can do to assist you know, the younger, newer balichuva as they adjust to religious life? Invite them for Shabbos, become friends with them, listen to their story, tell stories to them. Just connect, connect with them, pass on the wisdom of what we've learned, the trials and tribulations that we've been through, the, all the mistakes that I've made, you know, we've, we've made trial and error and just be a resource, be a friend. We don't necessarily have to be the best of friends, but you know, leave the door open and, and know that, if, hey, if you ever want to come talk, I'm here and just make yourself available. What's your number one piece of advice for a Balchiva couple getting married today? You know, when I hear Robbie Paul, uh, Yossi Paul Thiel's advice and Yossi Jacobson's advice, I mean, it's golden, you know, how to have a, a normal marriage and how to, you know, seek out, you know, mentors and families mm-hmm. that care about you. I guess my piece of it would be, don't ever be ashamed that you're a Balchiva. Don't ever be ashamed of what you have to bring to the table. It's very special. Embrace it and uh, share it. Become part of a community. Share yourself with others. Let other people get to know you. Get to know other people. Be friends with other people. Have relationships. That's what I would, I think maybe that's what I have to say. I'm just curious to touch on part of your story that you spoke about earlier, your move from Crown Heights to Kingston, Pennsylvania. And I want to ask you two questions. One, do you think Crown Heights is a healthy place for Bali Chuva to raise families and to live there for many years? And two, do you think that Bali Chuva should all find their own small communities? And is that a place where they'll have better support than living in the big city? I think everybody is, is unique. Everybody has their own stories and their own individual things. I mean, there are plenty of Bali Chuba that have lived in Crown Heights for years and have raised ma- wonderful families there, you know, and love it. And we also love Crown Heights. We were very sad to leave. I mean, it was very difficult to leave. It wasn't like we were running away. No, this Crown Heights is the place where the Rebbe's bracha is, no question about it. There's m- tremendous people there. And yes, I think definitely people can live and raise families there. And, and, uh, no, not everybody needs to go to a, a smaller community, I don't think. That may be the path for some people and maybe where they can find themselves. Crown Heights is a very big community. What made it tolerable for us to live in Crown Heights was having a sub-community that we were part of. So we were part of this, you know, Raya Paul Till Shear and the, and the friends that we had in the best community. I think that's essential. You need to be part of a community. You have to find some place where you matter, where you make a difference, where people are, you know, you see the same people and you make really lasting relationships. You know, my wife is from the country. Uh, She had a very hard time in the city for the 20 some odd years we lived there. And this is more, you know, fitting in terms of the, the, the nature of the place where we just feel, I think, you know, comfortable. And ultimately, I think this is also just a stepping stone. I think ultimately we're going to be in Eretz Yisrael with Mashiach. And that's really where every Jew is going to find their place. You know, uh, these are all temporary places. 
honestly. But right now, this is a nice temporary place for us to be here in Kingston. <laughs> Yuda Forster is an attorney and marriage and family therapist intern living with his wife and kids in Kingston, Pennsylvania. Yuda, thanks so much for sharing your story and talking with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. It's just us now, Riv. So what did you think of our conversation with Yuda? There was so much that really resonated with me, and I hope with other people, because he was really honest and open. And a big one for me was him talking about bringing his personality back into the picture and not losing himself in being religious. I think that's a crucial one. And incredibly, I think in our generation, that's not as much of a struggle. I think because maybe it's Mashiach times, maybe Chabad has become more open. People are finding that it's not an issue to have interests outside of davening, learning, cooking, you know, that people can find themselves and be real people and also love Hashem and all the things that come along with that. What about you? Well, just on that point, I think you're right that there is a growing trend to embrace yourself and make that part of your Jewish journey, part of your connection to Hashem, part of your learning of Hasidus. And that is an amazing thing. And I agree with you, his honesty and his openness and sharing that part of his story was incredible and I think added a new and really important element to the conversation we've been having on the podcast. I still think that everyone does still, to some degree, have a version of alienation that's just part of the Balchev experience of letting go of the past, changing radically, overturning as one has to and needs to, but then the the journey of rediscovering, and as we say in the name of our podcast, doing chuva in a way that comes full circle, comes back to yourself, I think for everyone that's healthy and needed and it's a constant process. What do you mean by alienation? Alienation meaning, like he put it, there's a part of yourself that you exile, that you don't recognize as yourself or allow to be part of yourself, at least the kind of ideal self that you are trying to mold into as a from Hasidic person, you think that you have to excise and let go of parts when actually the harder but more important work is to transform and integrate those parts into your service of Hashem. Mm-hmm. Did any of his answers surprise you? I was surprised when he, you know, we asked him about advice from mentors, and I think, again, he was just so honest. And he said there was great advice, but he just wasn't always in a position to hear it or even if he heard it, feel like he was capable of incorporating it. That shouldn't surprise me, maybe, but it's sort of a challenge for us because it means as much as we can bring incredible, wise, thoughtful, amazing people onto the podcast and have them share their advice or their stories, there has to be something that's even more direct and all-encompassing of the person you know, like inviting them into your home for a Shabbos meal. Because sometimes, as much good advice as there can be, a person's not in a position to hear and integrate it, at least at that point. I think also not everybody likes taking advice, which is annoying sometimes, but it's okay. Um, relating to that, when he said that his old mentors he needed to find distance from, and he found a new community that worked well with the stage that he was in, I think that is so remarkable because a lot of people when they're struggling, they reach back out to the mentors they had in yeshiva. And you can't always get the same advice when you are in your 20s to when you have a couple of kids 
and to have the clarity to know, okay, I need something new now and to be proactive in that rather than just drowning in the ocean waiting for someone to come and save you. But really to know that the structures of having mashpia and above are already in place and you just have to find a new one and get guidance to find the right one and to change your old relationships. That's incredible. I think for a lot of people out there struggling, and maybe that's advice they need to hear from a person who said, I had the best mentors. I, you know, My mentors were famous and I continued to learn from them, but I needed something new and that was a community. I needed friends my age and peers and those were the people that I shared with in addition to finding different mentors. Yeah, and therapy I think was a big part of that as well and you know the sort of honesty with himself that came with that. I think in terms of yeshiva mentors, what I loved about the way he described it is that he didn't have to let go of those relationships they knew him and they knew that it was time for him to grow in a different direction and so staying within the framework of those relationships he was able to have that kind of personal growth which i think is incredible to remember that just because it's the same person the same mashpia doesn't mean that you can't grow in a new direction and that the mashpia won't encourage and recognize that as something important and healthy for you what do you think is one idea that's going to stay with you from our conversation? I love the idea of sharing yourself with your children and not feeling like you have to hide behind this personality of being from near yourself and your kids want that. And honestly, like kids can tell when you're not being honest and being yourself. So push myself to integrate who I am, who I think I am, who I want to be with living a religious life. Because if I have any hope of fully integrating, that's going to be the way to do it. And when you model that, then your children have the choice of also living a healthy religious life, God willing. L'chaim. Thanks for listening to Shuva Full Circle. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. Come visit us at btcenter.org to suggest an idea or sponsor an upcoming episode. We'll see you next time on Shuva Full Circle.